Psychology in Seattle. Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. I'm Mandy, Kirk's cousin. And I am Umberto Casanya. I am Rick Santorum's Divinity Advisor. Please like us on Facebook. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. And please email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. We always love hearing from our listeners. Today we're going to be talking about attachment parenting. The reason we're going to be talking about this is because Cairo asked me to come on the Bill Radke treatment radio show to talk about attachment parenting because Time Magazine recently just had a front cover photograph of a woman breastfeeding her child who looks to be about three or four years old, and it's creating quite a bit of stir, and one of the things that radio likes to do is to talk about other people's news stories I've found. As a therapist and as a person who has never been in journalism or had any education in any kind of communications, I am fascinated with the media world. Because Psychology in Seattle got picked up by Cairo Radio about a year ago, Producers and radio talent at Cairo have have come to know me, and as a result, Bill Radke and his people have asked me to be on his show a few times, and and I've featured those episodes on this podcast before, the Bill Radke treatment episodes that I was on. So last Thursday night, I got an email from Jason Antebi, who is the producer of the Bill Radke treatment, and he asked me if I could be on the Bill Radke treatment the next morning. So Thursday night, I'm living my regular life, but as I'm living my regular life, going to dinner and hanging out with people and getting some work done, I'm trying to bone up on attachment parenting, of which I have no knowledge of. That's the reality of my life, my media life, is that they will ask me to come on to the radio to be an expert on something, of which I am not an expert on. But it doesn't mean by the next morning I can't read up a bunch and act like I'm an expert, because really that's all that counts, is is how convincing you are in your expert-like demeanor. And I'm being sarcastic, if you can't tell. Sometimes I wonder if the listeners understand when we're being sarcastic. I, I really hope so. So all Thursday night, when I got a chance, I would read about it, and I would ask people about it, and I thought about it. As a family therapist, I've, I've talked with a lot of clients about their parenting. I have not worked a lot with young children and their parents, but I, I have worked some, and I've supervised a number of therapists in training who work with young children, including infants. So I have some knowledge, and I think that my general knowledge in psychology gives me kind of a head start in terms of understanding some of this stuff, and and perhaps my familiarity with reading studies and finding information is, is also helpful when I'm asked to be an expert by the time they press record the next morning. So I thought I would just play the clip. And then, as usual, I would just pause it and chime in. So uh, let's listen to the Bill Radke treatment about attachment parenting, okay? All right, Time Magazine, it worked. You got our attention. This is the Bill Radke treatment, and we're going to talk this hour about the Time Magazine issue uh, that's just out showing a, a lovely woman uh, in her 20s breastfeeding her, not infant, but three-year-old, almost four-year-old. I actually thought it was great, but I got to admit it was shocking. That's your first reaction. Um, uh, but it does raise a bunch of questions. Uh, is this is is it normal? Does it make a kid weird uh, to breastfeed this long? And then the the article was about something called attachment parenting. What does that mean? And is is there such thing as attaching to your child too much? All that coming up this hour. By the way, I just want to say all the Cairo hosts are coming to a Tacoma Theater Wednesday night. Uh, a 90-minute behind-the-mic program. So in just a few minutes, I'll tell you how you can get tickets to that. Um, I want to talk with uh, some people who know about attachment parenting, and uh, and, and we're going to get into to all of that. Uh, Gigi Wickwire is a registered nurse, clinical social worker, and the facilitator of something called Listening Mothers. Gigi, hi, and what is Listening Mothers? 
Good morning. Listening Mothers is a program for mothers with children up to six months of age, and we focus in on secure attachment, creating a space for mothers to listen to their children and listen to themselves and deepen that relationship that's so important, as well as we um, spend time thinking about mindfulness practices and how to be present with their children. Okay. Being present with our children. We'll talk more about about what you mean by that. Um, uh, Fred Ingham, you are a dad. Yes. Live in in Montlake. Mm -hmm. And and you and your wife have uh, raised your child. Would you say attachment parenting is your philosophy? Yes, I I would say that we have. We read Dr. Sears' book, and Dr. Sears is profiled in the Time Magazine article. Um, My wife took um, Listening Mothers, and she and I both participated in a um, reflective parenting class, which is also offered by the same organization, the Community of Mindful Parents. So we're very interested in attachment parenting. It made sense to us as a healthy way to raise our son. And uh, it was also very rewarding and fun. So it was a, a approach to parenting that we that it enhanced our enjoyment of being parents. You know, let's just talk right now about, about uh, you've said mindful and reflective parenting. What are we talking about, Gigi? Mindful and reflective parenting. That's a great question. Um, what is attachment parenting? Yeah. Well, attachment, there's so many different pieces there. Mm. It's about um, meaningful connection. I think that if I was to say what the heart of um, mindfulness is, is cultivating connection that's meaningful and attuned to each child's needs. And it's different developmentally based on an infant versus a toddler versus an older child. Um, it also is relational. It depends on what the family's made makeup is. So sometimes families have a much busier schedule and Um, what they need for attachment may look different than what your family needs, Bill. Um, Does it mean you're constantly with your child? Well, you know, you're down on the floor playing with them. You're, they're sleeping in your bed there. Is that, it's a great question. So um, one of the things that's different that I want to just kind of call out in the beginning is there is attachment parenting, which is driven more from um, the literature that comes from Dr. Sears. And then there's what's called secure attachment and secure attachment comes from um, psychologists such as, uh, Edward Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and Winnicott. And they talk about secure attachment being this relationship that is the primary care provider, not always the mother, not always the father. Sometimes, sometimes it's a grandparent, depending on the family. And their um, secure attachments when you're paying attention to the child and being available for the child when he or she needs connection and, and um nourishment or attending to problems. But it also means making sure that when there's a rupture in attachment, that you focus on repair and um, because not, it's not possible at all times for each care provider to be on the floor or to do on-demand breastfeeding or to do co-sleeping and there are going to be ruptures and um, secure attachments informed by when there are ruptures, how do we come back into repair and cultivate connection? Okay. So Fred, the dad, I think all of us parents want to be connected and, you know, we pay as much attention to our children's needs and emotions as we can, but uh, what, what more does it, does it mean to you? I mean, it's like no, no TV, uh, no raising your voice. What? Um, I think to just build on what Gigi said, it meant it meant meant for us just being very available and attentive and attuned to what our son needed in the moment, and not uh, having a preconceived notion that oh, he can't be hungry now. Um, if he's showing signs of hunger, it's okay for him to eat. Um, so Does that mean very, the child gets whatever the child wants at all times? Well, attachment parenting is not appeasement parenting. Uh-huh. Um, so, but when they're very young, that actually is probably true, that if the child needs something, it's probably best to just respond and provide that. That was our approach. Okay, so more on, on how we meet those needs in a moment. Uh, I also asked my favorite Seattle psychologist, Kirk Conda, back on the show. Great to see you, Kirk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you host the, the podcast Psychology in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are a licensed marriage and family therapist. That's right. So for those listeners, uh, just to sort of help us understand secure attachment as opposed to what? Like in, in your experience, how do most of us parents treat our children? Well, they're often referred to as mainstream parents, I suppose. Um, I would say that it, it varies widely. And I think that some mainstream parents, so to speak, people that don't ascribe to a particular style of parenting in the literature, are very attuned to their children and mm-hmm. are very attentive and raise kids that have, you know, the experience for the children is very healthy. Well, what We're, are we failing to do that, that Fred and Gigi do? Well, I think that in our culture, we have this idea that we don't want to spoil children, which is a good idea. Mm-hmm. But I think it can take it a little, we can take it a little too far 
too early for mm-hmm. children that you can say to a child that's six months old, say, well, we don't want to spoil the child. We want to teach them that the world does not give them what they want. Right. And they need to learn that because I don't want a spoiled brat as a child. Now, the sentiment is OK, but I think in our culture, we have this idea that 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 message should be given to children very early. And the literature seems to suggest, and I think I believe this, that we shouldn't do that to very, very young children, that that sort of reality should should be given to children later on, that six-month-old infants should be given really what they want, that we should be, quote-unquote, spoiling them. Because okay. we're trying to reduce extreme emotional distress in children because they're so helpless. Yeah. And so they need us for everything. And so if we can reduce their the difficult times for them, then they seem to develop better. All right. So let's pick one example of what some people would call spoiling, which is the way a lot of Americans reacted to this photo and this issue of breastfeeding your child when they're able to say, mom, other breasts now in in America. It's not the norm. It's unusual. And to right. some people, I mean, I you'd see the comments on their website. This is this is weird. This is Gross. This is what is there any evidence that a child who breastfeeds for three or four years ends up being, you know, spoiled or weird? No, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that. In fact, the little evidence that they do have seems to suggest that this sort of parenting that Gigi and Fred are talking about seem to raise more healthy children. But it's it's unsure at this time because. In order to study this, you have to have experiments to some extent, <laughs> and you can't experiment on young children by depriving them of certain things and giving other children other things. So a lot of our research is done with monkeys. Mm-hmm. and Really? Yeah, which apparently we can um, experiment on them, mm-hmm. which doesn't make me feel so great. But um, a lot of the data that we use in this field is from that research. All right. So let me just chime in here for a second. First off, when I listened back to this, I am pleasantly surprised that I wasn't falling apart, that my nervousness wasn't getting the best of me. I think I'm getting less nervous on the radio. I don't know if you've listened to the other episodes, but I get quite nervous on these radio shows because they press record and I am not a natural performer. When I am on stage, my body does not like it and tries to get me off the stage by closing my throat, uh, depleting oxygen to the brain and just generally making me kind of dumb. But um, in this instance, it doesn't sound so bad. Uh, I wanted to jump in on the research a little bit. First off, I'm saying monkeys, but I really mean primates. It's believed that their psychologies are similar enough to humans that research on them is translatable to human psychological research, but they're not humans, and therefore we don't have the same ethics regarding conducting research upon them. For instance, they will take primates and deprive them of motherly affection and see what kind of effects that has on them. When you deprive young primates of motherly affection, you get a wide variety of negative psychological effects. And by the way, I'm one of those people that actually really loves animals. And the idea that we are experimenting on primates is not a happy thought to me. I I, I kind of wish we did not do that. The problem with research in this area is that it has to do with extremely broad topics. One of the topics that it's trying to study is what is the best way to help a person, a human being, to develop. How do you measure good development? What statistic can you measure that would allow you to evaluate whether or not a person has developed well? Do you go off of psychiatric symptoms? Do you go off of whether or not they graduate from high school? Do you go off of their reported well-being? Do you go off of lifespan, physical health, divorce rates, addiction? How do you measure whether or not one person developed better than another person. These are very difficult things to measure. If you're asking people about their general well-being, you're asking for a self-reported account. So let's say I asked you how happy you are on a scale from 1 to 10, with 10 being the happiest you've ever been and 1 being very depressed. You'd say, oh, well, I feel like I'm a 7. And I ask uh, the person next to you, how happy are you? And, And the person next to you says, oh, I'm a 7 too. How do you know that you're exactly the same amount of happiness? How do you know your 7 means the same as their 7? 
how do you evaluate happiness? What is the meaning of happiness? Is happiness the absence of sadness? Is it when good things happen to you? Is it a feeling that you feel physically in your body? Uh, You know, it, it gets very difficult to measure. So that's one thing. The next thing is, is how do you differentiate different kinds of parenting from each other? Parenting is a 24 seven experience. It's something that happens constantly on this micro level. And do you differentiate parenting by how much breastfeeding occurs? Do you measure different parenting by how much physical attention is given to the child? So these are difficult things to measure. The the other thing that makes it difficult to research this topic is anyone who has seen more than two children develop from infancy on knows that everyone is born differently. We used to believe that we taught children everything, that they're blank slates, that all their preferences and their personality traits are nurtured, are given to them by their environment. And and yes, there are, that is a significant part of our development, but people are born with certain dispositional characteristics. So what is the best way to parent all children if children are born with different dispositions? So how do you measure the best way to parent when children are born with different needs? For instance, one child might need a lot of independence. They, they might crave a lot of running away from their parents and having the freedom to do so. Another child might not have that need as much. One child might be born with a preference for a lot of physical cuddling, while another, another child might find it intolerable to be touched a lot by their parents. So I like the philosophy of attachment parenting because it actually does not prescribe a particular way of parenting children. It actually proposes a philosophy. So let me just go into the literature regarding attachment parenting. Now, do all attachment parenting parents parent in this attachment parenting way? Well, it's a lot of attachment and parenting words. No, but this is what the literature says, so take it or leave it. At the heart of attachment parenting, according to those who write about it, attachment parenting is learning to read the cues of a baby and to respond appropriately to those cues. So it's not about how often you sleep with your child in bed or how long you breastfeed a child. It's more about reading the cues from the children, figuring out what the child needs in that moment. And again, the research seems to suggest that it's difficult to spoil a very young child because they can have extreme emotional distress and have no way of making themselves feel better. They depend on their parents for everything. And when they are in severe distress, and some babies experience a lot of extreme distress, these children really need their parents to respond to them quickly to reduce that distress so that the child can learn that they can depend on other people, that they can learn how to, and in my psychodynamic point of view, they internalize a soothing other. Through the experience of being soothed, they internalize their parents and begin to soothe themselves. It's my belief, according to psychodynamic thinking, that those who can soothe themselves were soothed a lot in early childhood. And those who have difficulty soothing themselves were deprived of that soothing early in life. Now, that's a generalization. It's hard to apply it to everybody. But in general, that's that's what I believe. Attachment parenting involves being more flexible around bedtime. Instead of having bedtimes, parents are encouraged to allow kids to fall asleep naturally, so to speak. Because the idea is, is that when you make kids go to bed at a predetermined time before they're tired, they are isolated and perhaps go through some level of distress. And again, this isn't referring to 10-year-olds. It's referring to children who are very young. Attachment parenting also involves co-sleeping, meaning that the child sleeps with the parents in the bed or they sleep in the same room rather than being in a crib in another room. Again, When it comes to very young children, in my opinion, according to the research, it seems like that this is a good idea, that putting kids in a crib in another room, particularly if the children are not reacting well to it, if they're crying a lot. I remember hearing parents say when I was growing up, you have to force the kid to learn how to sleep on their own, and you just let them cry it out. 
that you put them in the crib, you shut the door and you, you don't go in there if they're crying because you don't want to let them manipulate you. They need, you don't want to spoil them. They need to learn how to sleep on their own. Now, sometimes this general idea is a good idea. Say if the kid were six or seven, then this might be wise to do. But if the child is quite young, say one, two or three, this might not be the best idea. They might not be ready to do this. And their experience of being left in a room by themselves at night might be very distressing. Now, I've heard parents tell me that there are kids who love to sleep by themselves in a room very young, that they just conk out at a certain hour and you can leave them in the room and everything's fine. And I've also heard stories of other children that are five, six, seven, eight, who have a ton of anxiety when they're left alone in a room. So this is not a one size fits all parenting style. So things have to be considered. And when things get kind of wacky, it's not a bad idea to consult with other parents and perhaps a professional. Attachment parenting also involves breastfeeding on demand. It's about when children want to breastfeed that you're there for them. So this means that mothers are available physically a lot and often. And again, this isn't about being a servant to a six-year-old, but it's about letting the child know that the parent is there for them when the child needs someone. And again, the idea is, is that when a child is very young, they need to have that secure attachment experience. And once they have that secure attachment experience, they can grow up. They can become more independent more quickly because they have a secure base in their minds. They have a feeling that people are there for them. And breastfeeding on demand, according to attachment parenting, is a part of that. Uh, Another part of it is holding and touching. It's about being in physical contact with children. Now, for some parents, this might be a no-brainer, but for some parents, this might be a novel idea that kids and really everyone needs to have a certain amount of physical attention, some people more than others. But this is actually something, incidentally, that I talk with a lot of adults. I'll, I'll sometimes ask them, how much touch do you have in your life? How much physical contact do you have with other people? Surprisingly, I find that a lot of people have almost no physical contact with other human beings, even if they're in a partnership. And this is a problem. Humans need physical contact. It's nourishing. It's soothing. It makes us feel good. There's something innate about our psychologies and about our bodies that we need to have physical contact with people. It's extremely important. So if you're one of those people out there who doesn't get a lot of touch, Try to cultivate relationships with people that allow for that. Another part of attachment parenting, according to the literature, is responsiveness to crying. Again, for very young children, it's important, according to attachment parenting, that children be not left alone crying and in distress, that parents respond very quickly to it. And again, the idea here is that you don't want children to have too much emotional distress because this leads to difficulties in attachment and they can actually become either cut off from other human beings as a result of being left alone when they're crying or they become, or they can become too needy. Now, so I'll say that most parents don't need to be told this. A lot of parents out there might be saying, well, I I don't consider myself to be following attachment parenting, but I don't need to be told by someone to respond to my child when they cry. All right, so so those are the central tenets according to the literature regarding attachment parenting. I just thought someone should define it rather than just talking about it without defining it. All right, so let's get back to the Bill Radke treatment. You know, for for my sense, the breastfeeding is just one aspect of um, that as to how you establish a secure parent-child bond. And what what can happen and what I've read is what can break down is that um, parents who are either unable to respond to their child in an attuned way, maybe there's a mother going through postpartum depression or highly distracted, the child can end up having insecure attachment. They're not really sure the parent's going to be there for them. And that sets a pattern of either avoiding or minim- or kind of shutting down or um, feeling very clingy and very needy. And so you set up attachment problems later. And then there are even worse situations where kids are abused and they end up you know, being afraid of their parents and having this and terrible disorganized type of attachment. I'm a fan of breastfeeding in public. I mean, I've talked about this on my show. I think we're just way too weirded out by it. Uh, but part of the thing we say is, it's not sexual. Let's, you know, let, 
Let's get over how whether it's sexy or not. It's just feeding a, a child. But then Time Magazine, don't, I just I feel like by putting really good looking, young, uh, attractive, they look like models on in their magazine. Honestly, I'm a straight male. I I went to set. They're they're showing. I mean, it's. Right. It's practically something you can't show. Uh, it, it's almost salacious. I wondered if you felt like there was were they kind of going for a mixed message there that look at these hotties breastfeeding. Am I alone? Well, you're telling two therapists this, so you, we could <laughs> probably help you out with that, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I think it's natural. You're, it's natural to be a sexual human being. I, I'll, I'll let you off the hook in that okay. way. Um, but I, I'll tell you, my, my own reaction to that picture was was visceral shock when I first saw it. I just, just yeah, my own body just, just was like, oh, because they're, they're, there's just something about that picture because they're both looking directly at the camera yes. and this sort of, it's almost defiance or something or just like, look at me or I don't know. Yeah, this is not a private moment with mom and a little newborn. It's, yeah. It, it looks dry. It almost looks clinical. Like, like what do you think of this? We're doing this. Yeah, it, it, it just, it just has an odd flavor to it, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think they chose that for a reason. Yeah. But um, then I quickly start going to in my mind and saying, well, let go of that. Don't worry about it. Breastfeeding is natural. Everything's OK. You yeah. know, because in our society, we're not used to seeing these things because traditionally we've been trying to shame people into hiding this, this to hide, hide breastfeeding. I'm not sure whether the this magazine is having the effect that advocates of attachment parenting wanted because it ends up being this. I don't know. It just feels kind of shock value and what i want is for breastfeeding not to be shocking i just want to say that's kirk honda who hosts the psychology in seattle podcast uh faculty member at antioch university uh, in seattle uh, also with me uh fred ingham you are a dad of how many just one just three-year-old one. son yeah and uh and also uh Gigi wickwire and by the way fred you you would call you would say you attachment parenting is your you read the dr sears book your, that's your philosophy. Yeah, um, it's informed my philosophy. Okay. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You don't have to subscribe to everything in the book. That's true. Right. Uh, Gigi Wickwire, you were with this uh, group called Listening Mothers, and you were beginning to tell us before the break about how, um, how did you put it, in a way where we are treating our children based on kind of what we what we lacked as children? Is that is that fair? Listening Mothers is part of Community of Mindful Parents. And kind of the overall philosophy is to make a space for mothers and in reflective parenting, which is another one of our programs, um, which is most, both mom and dad or same-sex partnerships. We make a space for parents to listen to their internal instinct on what they want to be doing around being in a deeper conversation relationship with their child. So we ask, it's mostly asking questions. It's asking questions like, how are you making these choices about attuning with your child where are you noticing openings for connection? What is this cue that you're seeing with this infant? Reflective parenting is for older children. What are you noticing about when they're asking for you to come in closer? What are they asking behaviorally? And um, that that is the most stunning part of being a mother because yeah. everything you do is fully handing over yourself to your child. You're on demand. And that's what secure attachment's about is making space for you to meet the needs of a, a child because there's something called the fourth trimester. It's a primal period. Children are born early because of our evolutionary design. They're not ready to be in the world. And so everything that happens in the first part is... They've got to get through the birth canal while they can still fit. Exactly. Yeah. But then developmentally over time, I think there's some there's these longer threads we haven't talked about as developmental changes that impact children um, around attachment, parenting, and secure attachment. In the infancy period, if a child has a secure attachment... So one way that that is formed is through object uh, constancy, knowing that mother is going to be there. So they have this idealized sense, this internalized sense of mother. So the goal is mother meets needs consistently. Baby forms a knowing that this mother is going to be there. And they start to make sense of that inside themselves. So when mother or primary care provider can't meet the needs, they can start referencing inside, which is called self-regulation. And then from there, as a child gets older developmentally, they should be able to go out into the world. And secure attachment allows a child to detach down the road. The, the goal in our culture and, and healthy parenting is a child will go out into the world and deal with waiting, deal with not un- unmet needs and figuring out how to take care of themselves in the process. And so that makes so much sense. Why don't we treat our children that way? As um, Fred was saying, that he subscribes to some of what Sears has to say, but he has his own philosophy. Every family has their own philosophy of how to raise their child. There's not one way to do it. And that's really an important part of what we do at Listening Mothers is like, what's true for you in helping families develop their own philosophy and the intersections of 
the complexities of our culture. We don't have a lot of time. We are asked to be doing so much nonstop. We don't have maternity leave policies to support families. It's just like in the last 10 to 15 years that breastfeeding has even become a norm again. And still women are consistently chastised being out in public when it's a law in the state to be able to breastfeed. And then the sexualization of our bodies. The one thing I appreciate about the cover and when I, you said you both felt the shock, squeamish response to it. And I read enough about the woman, um, her, I don't remember her name right now. Grume. Thank you. She kind of wanted to say, I want this image to be out there. And there's the power of image. And the image hangs out in our psyche. And that's where things start to change. And so while it's in your face, it's not, breastfeeding is not just about nourishment on the physical sating level of us getting, you know, milk in our bodies. It's about comfort and being close in. There's something about the mother's smell. And that's, you know, secure attachment has a whole bunch of other things in it. So I can appreciate that she wanted to be quite shocking in an image way to help our psyches make some shifts. I want to know where is dad in all of this? That's that's where I want to pick up uh, next, talking about uh, uh, secure attachment parenting. We're reacting to the Time magazine issue. It started with the cover of mom uh, breastfeeding a three-year-old, and it got a lot of people's attention. Inside the magazine, if you actually pay attention, is is um, a really great discussion about, uh, about how we raise our, our children and uh, what some call attachment parenting. And so I'm talking about this with uh, Kirk Honda, uh, licensed marriage family therapist, uh, host of the podcast Psychology in Seattle. Hi, Kirk. Hi. Uh, Gigi Wickwire, registered nurse, clinical social worker, facilitator at something called Listening Mothers. And Fred Ingham, uh, you're a dad. You're in Seattle. You also uh, uh, subscribe to this philosophy of, uh, I know there are a lot of different terms, but for for now, if I can say attachment parenting, um, this involves a lot of um, a lot of responsiveness, a lot of uh, mindfulness, a lot of uh, habits like um, uh, wearing your child. Uh, you know, we all are familiar with the sling, sleeping with your child. Some people like some of these and some people don't. But one good question is if mom is attaching to the child, where is dad, especially when you think of your kid in bed with you? You know, it's one of the challenges of raising a child this way, but it's also one of the gifts uh, is that that child is really um, part of your life. And, you know, I feel very fortunate that the way my life has worked out, I've been able to be uh, really closely involved in my son's raising. And that's something when we talked earlier about what what makes it hard to do this? How, how come 10,000 years of 20, 30, mm-hmm. 40,000, 50,000 years of evolution haven't made this possible? I think our culture for many years kept dads out of the picture pretty much yes. uh, completely for particularly early childhood. And so I think there's been a revolution in expectations and opportunities for dads. And I'm, I'm glad to have benefited from that. But, yeah, I think, you know, having a child in the bed um, is disruptive. Um, but you know, that's a negotiation between mom, dad, and baby and, you know, where kids sleep. I mean, that's a whole scene and how Mm -hmm. they sleep. You could Mm -hmm. do a whole show on just sleep challenges with young children and infants, but you know, we worked it out. Yeah. You know, it's not great for sleep. It's not great for other things, but it has other gifts. I think he just referred to sex. (laughs) Could I ask a question, Bill? Yeah. So uh, people in the Span of time that Jason contacted me and and coming here this morning. This is our producer who asked you to be on the show. That's right, Jason. I, I've been talking with a few people, and one of the things that people say, "Well, is how do you how do you have sex? Uh, you know, do you ever get to have sex if the child is is in the bed? What is what's your answer to that?" Uh, yes, you can, and you just need to be a little more creative and a little with the more child flexible. Um, I don't think I. I think it's different for every you know, family. There, and there are ways to work around that. Yeah, there, there are ways to work around that. Um, I think every couple needs to work out what works. Yes. Be flexible, be creative, be spontaneous, or don't. You may have to plan. There were spots on our calendar sometimes yeah. that said, you know, we'd like to make time for ourselves. And either the child was in the care of our loving and locally located grandparents or, you know, sleeping or whatever. It worked out. So. Mm-hmm. Date, okay, date time is pretty common regardless mm-hmm. <laughs> for families. You have to make time when they're raising children to have time together. So, But I do think it's an important point um, that attachment parenting is not, I, I don't think it would be a good idea to say, well, because I'm doing attachment parenting, I need to not focus on the relationship mm-hmm. and the, between the couple that's raising the child 
Um, you know, as a father, I need to be able to support my spouse and I can do that best when we're attuned and mm-hmm. we're in shape and our marriage is going okay. It's harder for me to be supportive if um, there is no acknowledgement of some of my needs in the marriage. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, uh, I've heard it said, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first. Mm-hmm. And that applies to the marriage, not just to the mother yeah. or the father. Well, it sounds like a very balanced way of parenting. It's, it sounds like you have to balance quite a bit of things. It's not just all about the child. It's also about you and about your relationship and your own time. Right. Because you, the last thing you want to do, and not that you would never feel this way, because I think you would, you, if you never felt that way, it wouldn't be normal. But it's not about being so available to the child that you build up a resentment yeah. and are unable to be fully present for them or that they can sense. I mean, children are psychic in this way. I mean, they can sense whether you're truly there mm-hmm. for them or whether mm-hmm. you've, you're harboring. They, they can read the energy even if mm-hmm. they can't speak the words. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you've, you've got to acknowledge your needs as well. Mm-hmm. Kirk, any pitfalls to what Dr. Sears called attachment parenting? I suppose one would be swinging too far in the direction of what Fred's saying in terms of not having a balance mm-hmm. um, and and giving yourself completely over to every whim of the child and not thinking about yourself. And that's and, how some people caricature attachment parenting. Right. right. And, and I would imagine that that actually doesn't happen a lot for people on the ground level. Yep. I think that's our assumption about it, yep. given our cultural disposition for not spoiling children and teaching them that the world is tough, you know, <laughs> grow up, kid. Yeah. Gigi, what about you? Have you found any? Uh, I mean, can you share any advice? What comes to mind listening to you? Um, Fred talk right now and then Kirk responding and it's just the dance. It's a complex dance of parenting and um, you try things on and it works for a while and then the relationship shifts and change and it's different for each child in the family with multiple children. So what worked for one child is not necessarily going to work for another child. You probably figured found that yourself, Bill, as a father. Having three. Yeah. Yes. You know, I have twin uh, two-year-olds, a boy and a girl. Any differences between sons and daughters that we ought to talk about? I don't know that it's based on gender as much as just each child's temperament and disposition and who they are. <laughs> can I therapist just, can, Kirk Hondo want to give you the final word? Oh, the final word. Oh, my God. Um, well, I want to say that a lot of people come to me and feel extremely judged by society and by about from other people about their parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a lot of my clients will cry um, and despair about being confronted in the safe way or something about some particular parenting. And there's so much pressure on parents to, yes. to, to do the perfect thing or to do one particular way of parenting. And I just want to say, parents out there, believe in yourself. Don't listen to other people's judgment of you. You know, love your children and you're probably doing that anyway. So I don't need to tell you to do that. <laughs> Kirk Honda, uh, host of the podcast Psychology in Seattle. Uh, he's at Antioch University. And uh, Dad, Fred Ingham, and Gigi Wickwire with Listening Mothers. I want to thank you so much for talking about this with me on the Bill Radke Treatment. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. Okay, so that's the end of that clip. So I left the studio. I left the, the the little recording booth that we were in, and I ran in to Luke Burbank, who is a radio star. He has his own podcast called uh, what's it called? TBTL. Too beautiful to live. Um, he's also on the Ross and Burbank show. I think it is. Anyway. So I I ran into Luke in the main newsroom, and I was happy that he recognized me from having met previously. The reason why I was happy is because, to me, he's kind of a local star. So I ran into Luke Burbank in the newsroom as he was taking a break from his morning news radio show. We had this interesting conversation about attachment parenting because he was talking about it on his radio show. And then I went back and listened to the segment that he made. And I just, and I thought, huh, I should include that in the podcast as well because he interviews one of the women who is in Time Magazine. So let's go to that clip right now. Deanna, what is, um, uh, tell me about your kids and also your, your parenting style. Well, I have a four-year-old and a son who is Kieran. Mm-hmm and a five-month-old daughter, Ilia. And we don't practice attachment parenting because it's this philosophy that you have to follow every single thing. We do what works for us. Yeah. And we like, you know, a lot of the tenets of attachment parenting work well for our family. What are some of the things that you guys do that maybe, say, a typical family might not do? Um, 
Well, I could start by saying co-sleeping because that's a really hot uh, hot button topic when yeah. you start talking about attachment parenting. And you but said co-sleeping. You said co-sleeping, which means you, you let your kids sleep with you whenever they want uh, at do, any time. Yeah. We have our children in our bed. Co-sleeping could also mean, um, you know, co-rooming, so you could have a separate bed in your room um, and just keeping the child close. But while that is um, a hot-button topic, I think the research shows that more parents do it than admit to it. Sure. Can I ask you an obvious and slightly inappropriate question? How do you have sex with the kids in the bed? Oh my gosh, you can Google and find all kinds of articles. We're just, we're not confined to the bed at night. We have a very rich and varied sex life. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, because one of the comments was, one of the, one of the fears apparently was that the child would take the place of the husband. That's not happening in your oh, relationship. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I think I'm able, I think any parent is able to distinguish between the relationship with the child and the relationship with their partner. You, you know, if you think that sex has to be in bed at night, then I, I'm sorry for <laughs> well, your sex life. Okay, I just wanted to chime in here for a second. This idea that if a mother gives a lot of attention to her child, that somehow the husband is in competition with that and will get neglected. It's an interesting statement that I've heard other people say. I think that it's based on a few cultural understandings that I have a problem with. When we're introduced to the idea of a child sleeping in the bed of the parents, the first thought people often have is, well, the dad's not going to like that. Well, what if that was the dad's idea? What if the dad is the one that is preferring to have the child in the bed. And the mother is the one that is upset about that. Take it from me. I have seen a lot of couples where the wife is the one that wants more affection and the husband is not the one that is giving it. So there's that. The other thing is, is this idea that wives are servants of children and of husbands. This is a patriarchal sexist idea that I blanch at when I am faced with it. Now, having said that, I will also say that it is true that sometimes a parent, whether it's the father or the mother, if a parent becomes extremely over-involved with their children and get all of their needs met, their physical needs, meaning cuddling and familial love, they get all their needs met through their children and they neglect their relationship with their partner that that is a real threat to the marriage. And I've seen this happen. I've, I, I have clients come in saying that when they had their children, that was the end of their marriage, that they focused on their children only and neglected their marriage. I've seen other families where the children move out because they've grown up and moved out, and then there's an empty nest. And the parents turn to each other and say, who are you? They will tell me that they didn't pay attention to each other. So it is a real issue. And I think that, as we mentioned earlier, as, as Fred had mentioned earlier, balance is the key. It's not about neglecting anybody. It's about having a balance between your marriage, between giving the children the attention that they need to develop well. It's about not spoiling, spoiling your children, but it's about perhaps spoiling your children at the age that they need to be spoiled at. So anyway, get, let's get back to the Ross and Burbank show, because I think this interview is, is very good. I think she responds very well to the questions. When people look at that picture, I think that one of the main things that, are, that makes us uncomfortable with seeing that is that when you think of breastfeeding, you're probably thinking of the way I might see, what I might nurse my five-month-old, which is all the time because mm-hmm. she... I am her sole source of nutrition. But as a child gets older, their need for breastfeeding decreases because they're getting nutrition from other sources. So, you know, that child on the cover does not nurse 24-7. My son, he probably asks me to nurse once every week or two, and it's like a minute at night. So we're not nursing all the time. Mm-hmm. It looks much different than the way that you would breastfeed a younger is any, child. Is there any indication that, um, and we're talking to Deanna Ford, who was also in that Time Magazine article, is there any indication that extended breastfeeding 
uh, harms children in any way? Because that seems to be the undertone here. That the the problem with this is it's the picture might be shocking, but that's not it. The the concern is that you are raising children who are going to be entirely dependent for the rest of their lives. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I can think of a couple different things. Number one, I've looked at the research, and the research that I've seen is that. First of all, when you foster healthy, loving attachments with children when they're younger, they are going to naturally become independent in a healthy way. We don't need to push our kids to, to be independent. They have their whole lives to do that. And a three-year-old does not need to know how to function on his own in this world. Um, the other thing is, is that there is a lot of research that shows how healthy extended breastfeeding can be for both mother and child. Not only can it benefit children, um, you know, because there's antibodies and it helps reduce diabetes and certain types of cancers, but it also can reduce a mother's chance of getting reproductive cancers. All right. I'm just going to chime in here for a second and say that I really love her responses. I think that she represents these types of parents very well. I, I think some people, when they hear about attachment parenting, they just think it's comprised of a bunch of wackos and idiots or something. But um, as you can clearly tell, this is a very conscientious, mature woman who is trying to do the best she can for herself and her family. And if every parent were like here, this world might be a utopia. And incidentally, I just, I'll just wrap up by saying, again, how do we measure good parenting? How do we measure good development? How do we measure a healthy individual? These are extremely difficult things. And as I said at the end of the Bill Radke treatment, in general, I think American culture is highly judgmental of parents. And parents in general, are doing a fantastic job with their kids and have a wide variety of being fantastic with their children. Now, are there things that they could improve on? Probably. But it's not about being a perfect parent. It's about being a good enough parent. It's about being a parent that will raise a child that is healthy enough. It's not about being perfect. Okay, now let's go to news or tougher bluff or something. Let's go to that. Yeah. Um, so apparently, there's a new cancer vaccine. Have you guys have you seen this? Have you have you read about this? No. Which <laughs> um, which kind of cancer? Well, a, a universal quote unquote vaccine that could beat ninety percent of cancers. I'm reading from uh, some DailyMail.co.uk. Um, oh, not the Daily Mail. No, no, but this is real. I, I can confirm it from multiple sources. Okay. Um, aliens landed in England. I mean, and- incidentally, <laughs> the Daily Mail is notorious for yeah. their shoddy Listen, journal. I would have showed you the better the New York Times link, but it required paying for it. Oh, okay. So apparently what the vaccine does is it encourages the body to fight cancers that have uh, a s- certain type of uh, proteins or DNA fingerprint or whatever. But the point is that it's very common to cancers. So the point is we're going to live forever. That's what you're saying? Because I want to live forever. So Who wants to live forever? What's that line from Conan? Do you want to live forever? Do you remember that movie? That, that movie? The movie, yes, but I don't remember the... the His girlfriend jumps into the the risky situation and says, do you want to live forever? It's, it's, their, it's their little saying that they have back oh, and forth. Okay. Yeah. I loved that movie when I was a kid, but it's kind of disturbing. So, well, yeah. Well, I remember the, uh, what, what is best in life, Conan? Yeah. It's like to, to uh, was it, uh, slay your enemies? No, dra- yeah. Drag their women before you. Oh, no. Drag them before you and hear the lamentations of their women. Or yeah, that's like. right. Yeah. To kill your enemies, to drive them before you, and to hear the lamentations. We are, we are so good at it. Crom <laughs> <laughs> laughs at your four wins. Okay. All right. News. Oh, my God. Good transition. Um, All right. Teen pregnancies are at their lowest rate in nearly 40 years. But you should know that 40 years ago is about when we started keeping track of teen pregnancies. So since we started keeping track, they're at the lowest. Is that because of the Costco condoms? Right. (laughs) I'm still waiting. Brought to you by... Pounded hard condoms. <laughs> so they said 7% of girls between the ages of 15 and 19 were pregnant, and that's down from 11% of the same age range of girls in 1990. Wow. So we're at the lowest teenage pregnancy rate since we started keeping track of this sort of thing in 40 years. Yeah. That's wow. that's different from what the narrative of our national yes. politics is. I would have to agree. They are saying the, the country's going down the tubes, that right. we're, we're losing morality, that Facebook and sexting is leading to... Well, we are. I mean, because think about it. The reason there's less pregnancy is because people are doing 
other types of fornication that are more devil-like, you know, and they're using contraception, which is certainly devil-like. So, yeah, yeah, they're they're right. If they were true moralistic individuals, they'd be getting pregnant as teens like everyone else. Yes. Yeah. No, abstinence till you're 25 and married. Well, I like statistics like this because it makes me think that we are actually progressing as a society. I mean, not that teenage pregnancy is a bad, evil thing, but we would say that most teenage pregnancies were unplanned and that they are potentially unfortunate there are some teenage pregnancies that are wonderful my older brother is a teenage pregnancy and he's a wonderful guy and my parents would never have uh, said that that was a bad thing it was an accident but uh (laughs) wait did he stay permanently as a teenage pregnancy i'm trying to imagine this yeah when i talk to him i say hello brother teenage pregnancy how are you (laughs) Uh, actually i don't think i ever really thought of him as a teenage pregnancy but but he is i picture him in a jar somewhere like that's my teenage pregnancy (laughs) (laughs) what Sorry, that's what I have a vivid imagination. Ugh, too uh, vivid. It's you. a very specific imagination. <laughs> do you have short socks with dress shoes? Uh, Mandy, yeah. Why do you have those? <laughs> Birdo has running Nike Nike running socks with nice dress shoes on. They're not even that nice. So when he sits down, you just see you know this nice shoe. Oh, it just means my pants are not long enough. Yeah, and then his hairy legs. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Manny, on the other hand, looks fantastic. She is wearing uh, very fashionable high heel <laughs> shoes with, with uh, what do you call those, tights? Yes. And a skirt with a nice uh, top. <laughs> she looks very professional today. Thank you. Um, if only you could see her. Actually, we just did a video episode about art therapy. You can watch that. And for the second time, known to man. I've been recorded via video feed for consumption in cyberspace. Okay, tougher bluff. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to start it off. The Japanese word for dung beetle translates as poop lover. Tougher bluff. (laughs) The Japanese word for dung beetle translates as poop lover. Tougher bluff. Oh, jeez. Poop lover. I'm going to go with tough. I I really, I don't know. It sounds crazy. It's crazy enough to work, but you might be trying to get us on a technicality, so I'm going to go bluff. It's bluff. It's poop roller. I knew it, <laughs> but I didn't know what the real meaning was. Isn't that funny? Poop roller? Poop roller. <laughs> All right, so tougher bluff. It took nine people to work the full-sized animatronic of Jabba the Hutt. Nine people. I'll say tough. That sounds about right. Well, what do you mean animatronic? Jabba was real. When there were stunts, they needed. Oh, okay. Right, okay, the okay. stunt double. Uh, uh, that sounds like. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go tough. It's bluff. It oh. only took six people. Oh. But six people somewhere jammed inside that. Well, you got to figure there's the tongue. That requires one person. Yeah, one puppeteer for the tongue. Totally. Have you seen at that least. tongue? That tongue yeah. goes all over the place. Yeah. Then there's the, the lips and then the eyes. And then the eyelids, the tail, and then the head, you know, the whole thing kind of moves. Mandy, were you more turned on by the tongue or the tail of Jabba the Hutt? Oh, my God. Well, we figure that women would be turned on by Jabba because all the men were turned on by Leah. So That's right. It's a sexy scene. That was the love story in the movie. Tough or bluff. Uh, okay, so have you guys ever heard of He-Man? <laughs> I know you have Honda. Of course, He-Man and Chira. Oh, my God. Awesome. All right. Great. She lives in the 80s, even though she was born in, what, 1995 or something? Fuck you! She knows 80s (laughs) things. This is awesome. She just asked me to download a bunch of Huey Lewis stuff to her pen drive. I love Huey Lewis. So, (laughs) okay. So, here we go. In 1976, Mattel CEO Ray Wagner declined a deal to produce the action figures based on a very big movie. And instead of doing this, he ended up doing He-Man. But the one he was going to do was the Alien toys, but there was a lot of cost to it. So he declined it. From Alien, the movie. Yeah. And this was in 1976. So the statement is the CEO of Mattel declined to do toys Alien. for Alien, a toy line for Alien, and it ended up doing He-Man toys instead. Uh, I'll, what year was this? 1976. Uh, 76. I will say that that is a bluff. It was Star Wars. I'm going to say bluff because I don't think He-Man and she was around in 76. Well, it turns out He-Man is older than we think. But what? How did you know this, Honda? Uh, just You're a, right. Just a corollary with 76. 
But the Star Wars didn't come out till 77. 77. I know, but they I had... know they would have been doing the deals. Yeah. Well, you're right. He turned down. Yeah. He turned down. Mattel turned down the Star Wars toys. When I was a kid, I had one figure. I had one little doll. It was a Luke Skywalker little doll, like a one of those three inch jobbies. Yeah. And I loved this little. This, you know, he had a gun right. and everything. And then fast forward four or five years later, and my little brother has like fifty of these of these figures <laughs> and he has a Darth Vader head that fits all the different right. you, do you remember this yeah they had a C3PO one they had a Darth Vader one yeah and they, you open up yeah. this this Darth Vader head to reveal his 50 different figures of like <laughs> yeah. these these like random uh bounty hunters That's that right. you don't even know the names of and IG99 or 89 sorry IG99 yeah. and you were 89. insanely jealous I was insanely jealous okay. yeah. you still are yeah okay. all right tougher bluff in empire they shot the hoth scenes in norway tougher bluff in Empire Strikes Back, they shot the Hoth scenes in Norway. Oh, um, I don't know where they shot those. That is very intriguing, Norway. Cold there? That cold? I'm going to go for Bluff. It had to be someplace more arctic Like Antarctica or Greenland? Yeah. I'm going to say Bluff. I think it was Iceland. Mm, it was Norway. It was Norway? I gotcha. Oh, it really? It was Norway? It's really that... Really snowy, icy. Uh, apparently, wow. so I know they were in Tunisia for the desert. Yeah, that was well. That was Star. That was uh, yeah, Tatooine. But uh, I thought it was Iceland. That's crazy. James Earl Jones was not originally credited in all three of the films. James Earl Jones was not originally credited in all three of the films. The original films in episodes four, five, and six. Uh, bluff. He had to have been. I will say Bluff. I think he was not credited in four. That is actually tough. He requested to not be put in the credits because he was an up-and-coming actor, and he didn't know if he wanted to be associated with it. In like the re-release version in 1997, he was credited in it, but that's when they said he was in added. In any of the movies, he was never credited originally? He was a serious actor. Oh, my God. Well, right. did you know that Alec Guinness regretted oh, being... He was like, okay, I'm about to die, or my career's about to end, <laughs> yeah. and everyone's going to only remember me as Obi-Wan Kenobi when I've been this wonderful actor doing wonderful too things. too bad he regretted that, man. He made so many kids' lives. All right, so uh, the original inspiration for He-Man was uh, Conan the Barbarian. That's a tougher bluff? Yeah. The original inspiration for He-Man was Conan the, the Barbarian. I'll say tough. That, that sounds like it could be true. Hmm... Bluff. It was a rumor in the in 1980s that that was the case, and it was a very elaborate rumor. But it turns out that the guy that came up with it, Sweet, is his last name. He refuted the rumor, saying, "No, no, no, they had come up with that way before the Conan movie." So I don't know if they were lying or not. But officially, it's a rumor. So you're right; it's a bluff. Have you ever noticed that all the He-Man characters have the exact same body? Oh yeah, that's why you can change the arms. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Well, so in the cartoon, all the different characters, whether they're good, the Skeletor, the He-Man, the Man at Arms, they yeah. all have the exact same body, but they have different colors painted on them right. or different armor on them. And basically, the reason why they did that, I'm guessing, is so that they could make one mold, yep. one body in the man in the in the factory, and then just put different heads on them, and and it would be a lesser cost to to produce so you could you could make more profit yeah yep that's i mean they talk about that in the wikipedia oh they do but i mean it wasn't exactly like uh, 100 percent the same body because they would add stuff to it but 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 it was the same mold mold absolutely yeah that's That's why all the arms fit on all the characters so they confirmed that oh yeah so this is a 25 year old theory that i've had that you just confirmed yes or or 28 different heads Different addendums, definitely different color jobs. Because even the cartoon, what they had the same body. They got more elaborate when they started doing the remember the damage battle damage He Man and stuff like that. Where no, uh, oh, you could hit it and it would flip this little thing, and you could see uh. scars on their chest. And see, stuff. that's another thing. My brother had a ton of He Man stuff, and he had this Skeletor castle, Castle Gray Skull. Yeah, Castle Gray Skull. That was my brother too. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, that does it for. Oh no, before. Before we adjourn, I wanted to create a. I wanted to start off a new segment called "Complaining in Seattle." What what do we got to call it? <laughs> Angry in Seattle. <laughs> uh, com- complaints. What do they call it? Com- complaint department, right? What do you call that drop box of complaints? Comment box. Comment Suggestion box? box. No, no, no. This Gripes? is more. This Gripes. Is- 
Grapes. Grapes. And grapes of wrath. Gra- <laughs> grapes of wrath. <laughs> grapes and tripes. Yeah. <laughs> grapes and tripes. tripes. What are the tripes? I don't know. No, let's the, just the lining grapes. of cow's stomach. Grapes is good. Gra- grapes of it's wrath. A, our new grapes of wrath session. Okay, I like <laughs> grapes of wrath. Session. Let's have a grapes of wrath session. <laughs> have, you, have you ever been in a grapes? Of wrath? Okay, here's my first. Here's my first grapes of wrath. <laughs> There is a Honda dealership in, in Kirkland, Washington, that is called Kirkland Honda. And I, am, I want to complain about that because uh, when I called a, a, some, someone who didn't know me on the phone today, uh, for the first five minutes, I, they, were trying to get, they were trying to get rid of me because they thought I was someone from Kirkland Honda, the dealership in Kirkland, Washington, the Honda dealership. And then finally, after five minutes of saying, no, my name is Kirk Honda. Honda, I, blah blah blah. She finally said, "Oh, oh!" She, it took her that long to figure <laughs> out. And I get this a lot when people, when I call people, and it comes up on their, I, you know, their caller ID, they instantly think that it's someone <laughs> from the Kirkland Honda. Oh, yeah. tough life. You didn't have Castle Gray School. And people mistake you for a goddamn car dealership, which no one wants them to call. And when I bought my Honda, I called around to the different dealerships to get the best deal, and Kirkland Honda would not deal with me over the phone. They were like, no, you have to come in, and I thought that was really bad customer service. That's a double gripe on Kirkland Honda. You hear that? We won't take your sponsorship. (laughs) (laughs) All right, gripes of wrath. I often rage about this at the lunch table with my fellow coworkers that are female about gym and locker room etiquette and my gripe is all right i sound like a jerk and i am that's a full disclaimer right now um the there's something generationally different about women you know around my age or you know in their 30s and maybe early 40s where they're just more modest and they just don't need to get full on buck naked, stand there drying off their crotch or just just wandering around to the bathroom at the sink, drying their hair like actually just naked. Yes, it's the ladies locker room, but like they are naked and lumpy and got this full bush hanging out. And, and you're just like, oh, my God. Keep talking. (laughs) And that's my gripe in that they just like stand there like, you know what? Fine. There's going to be people who are like, I feel proud. Go be proud. But just get it away from me. Go be proud. Naked someplace else. So you're saying that the older you are, the more likely you are going to flaunt it in the locker room. Not flaunting. They just don't give a shit. And they're like, whatever. This is me. And it's like, I know, but I want to see less of you. Oh, wait. Are these the older women? The older women. The older generation is... Elderly, elderly. I was getting excited. I thought it was the younger generation. No, no. People like me are, you know, probably not as big and lumpy or full bush terry. I see. But, you know, if you're a young lady who enjoys the bush, I know some that's fine, too. I'm just saying that I've just got some face full of that and been like, oh, <laughs> Weren't you saying that when they bend over, they they don't know exactly which way to orient themselves in a in a respectful way? Right. You know, if you're going to be bending over, and I'm sitting at the bench trying to tie my shoes or put on some socks, and you're bending over, right? <laughs> at your midpoint and with, with your butt and coochie in my face please just back your butt backside against the lockers and bend with your ass pointing that way uh. and your head out you know what i'm just saying you don't want to like full frontal because you get too tempted right i am just extremely tempted with sweaty lumpy old ladies there should be a you know how they have those rules that they have in locker rooms they should have a rule that says when you bend over do it perpendicular to someone not not oriented straight towards them yeah because they have rules about no cell phones so you can't take pictures that's all great and good but i don't want to take pictures if that's what i'm going to be seeing right right but isn't this true about men too that the older men dude i have some horror stories speaking of which (laughs) my gripes of wrath um this is an oldie but a goodie uh, it's another gym membership type thing. Oh, good. You're sitting there in the in the gym, and it is the older gentleman. And at this point, I was uh, it was me and my buddy. We were both in our mid twenties, and this older gentleman was probably sixty. And uh, we were changing. I noticed out of the corner corner of my eye. So we were along a set of uh, lockers, and they're we're facing the lockers. And then the lockers come to a point where they end, and there's a corner, and there's a mirror on that other side of the of the wall, essentially. Well, I noticed that this older gentleman is looking at himself in the mirror, which would be fine. 
except that I realize half of his face is looking at the mirror. The other half I can see because it's sticking out of the corner. So he's actually watching us change, pretending to be looking in the mirror. And it's like, uh, okay, I mean, I don't care about your orientation, but I do care that you're staring at me while I'm changing. And and, and then the worst part is... It's funny that you assume he's looking at you and not your friend. Oh, no, it was probably my friend. But the point is that he's... But both of us are there. No, and then the same gentleman proceeds to dry off with one foot. So fully naked, like you were saying, one foot up on the bench. Yeah, I hate that. And everything on display, and there's just towel off, towel off for a good like 15 minutes, dude. How much wetness can you have? Exactly. Were you mesmerized? Were you mesmerized? Yeah, so turned out. Well, you know, there are people out there that have a certain. Uh, shall we say attraction to to showing themselves to people exhibitionist mm-hmm. a little bit yeah sure and i can imagine that this is a good place where they can do it and in a legal way right they can expose themselves to people all day long that's right and uh <laughs> it's not illegal it's completely legal that's right my takeaway from it was like dress quick <laughs> get out get out exactly eyes down yes. get out quick all right well that does it for another episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining us please take care of yourself Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Was that the NBC theme? Man. Or something like that. <laughs> that movie. It was great. It was. It's kind of a trap. Didn't it have Danny? Am I crazier? Did it have Danny DeVito in it? Dustin Hoffman, you mean? Oh, Dustin Hoffman. That's right. It's because I've been watching a lot of uh, It's Always Sunny in right, Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because he's in that. Danny DeVito's in. Yes. Are you being facetious? No, I was going to say, well. You're like, oh, I've been watching, and I was like, waiting for you to say, it's always sunny. Oh, do you watch that? No, but I know he's in that. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. And that's like the only thing he's doing other than being Uh, the voice of the Lorax, which I hear is. Is he the voice of the Lorax? Yeah, absolutely. I hear it's not that good. I hear it's very, like, pushy-pushy on the agenda. Oh. Which is apparently saving the environment. Oh, I see. Which is not Didn't you read the Lorax's... uh, did you ever read any of Dr. Seuss's books? Yeah, but not the Lorax. Really? Never even knew about the Lorax. Really? It's definitely about saving the environment. I see. So I don't know how many episodes we're going to do because I don't have like three episodes worth. I only have two episodes worth. Well, I guess we'll just have to see what you what we need to do. I don't know. Hmm. God, our therapy was a trip. A fucking trip. My God. That was interesting. Very interesting. You I got mean, so nervous about it. Well, yeah, because... I'm always nervous when it comes to, like, art. Like, even something as fucking stupid as painting pottery, like, you've shown up, you've picked out a piece, you're going to pay for it, you got to paint it, and it's got to look decent, or you could basically just throw in your money in the garbage. So you got to <laughs> paint it to look decent, so when you pick it up in two weeks, it's something you want to look at or eat off of, you know? And, I'm right. all, and I always get, like, crazy anxiety. Like, I got to be the boring girl who, like, uses stencils. Because I'm like, stencils mean you don't have to be creative because somebody else already has. You can trace it on the on the uh, thingy with a pencil and then glaze it. Then why over do you it. do it? I haven't painted pottery in a really long time because I don't. Because I'm not creative. And being forced to be even a little bit creative, a.k.a. drawing five lines, was like, No. That's no, so I can't. Weird. And you should meet my brother because he is like an extremely artistic person. He can draw and he sculpts. He's an amateur but like pretty impressive sculptor. And he doesn't sketch. He doesn't map anything out. He just sits down with clay <laughs> and makes something crazy from his imagination. And I have nothing of that. Nothing. Hmm. So it's really hard for me. Do you associate like art with being good at the skill of drawing or painting or sculpting yeah because uh, there's a lot of modern art that doesn't make that association that you can suck and be good well they just express like literally people taking a poop in a jar and putting it on display and being like, that's me people are like, oh that's so deep i just walked back back in the room on this conversation you'll, you'll <laughs> give it a listen when you uh replay it right has yep. it been recording yeah. All right. Well. Sometimes I include your conversations at the ends of episodes. Oh, really? I've That's noticed. Awesome. I listen all the way to the end until <laughs> it starts back over. I like it. I like when you have a little bit of the repartee. Yeah. Yeah. And you at least let us say goodbye and we laugh and it kind of just <laughs> dribbles on. Fizzles on. I like yeah. it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we're probably listening to the end of an episode <laughs> right now. Yeah. The, the part about the poop in the jar will be gold mine. Gold mine. Yeah. All that talk about deep poop. <laughs> Actually, I have a tougher bluff about poop coming up. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yep. 